Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Hebrews chapter 12, reading verses 1 to 3. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. With the first word of chapter 12, wherefore, or if you please, therefore, we have a concluding application of this great epistle in which the apostle reinforces his main point in the Hebrew letter, and that is the need to persevere or to keep on keeping on in faithful discipleship. That's a theme that his readers needed. It's a theme that we need today. Keep going. Never, never, never give up. Endure to the end. We know that based on previous messages in our study in this epistle, that his readers were growing weary and spiritually fatigued with the pressures of life and the opposition that they were facing from their peers. And may I suggest that the longer I live and the more I realize what a challenging thing it is to be faithful to the Lord, the more I admire those saints that have run all the way through the tape that have finished strong, that are faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ all the way to the very end of their life. May I suggest that's the exception rather than the rule these days. And our push-button, add-water-and-serve, instant gratification society makes staying power, or as one book title in my library calls it, a long obedience in the same direction increasingly rare in our day. It would easily take both hands and maybe several of my toes to count the preachers that I've known in the past 40 plus years of ordained ministry that once preached the gospel of grace who have now left the pulpit. Many of them not only are not preaching anymore, but some of them have even left the church entirely. That's a sad thing to me. Many of them were dear friends back in the day. I could go through the list right now, and if I wanted to get real depressed, that's what I would do. And I wouldn't have enough fingers and toes to count the people, not just the preachers, but the professing Christians who once were baptized and professed faith in Jesus Christ that have Demas-like over the years abandon the path of discipleship for one reason or another. I can think of nothing more desirable in my life this morning than to be able to say with Paul when I get to the end, I have kept the faith, 
I have finished my course with joy. Oh, that I could reach that point without falling by the wayside because of some moral impropriety or some theological error or some attitude problem without throwing in the towel in discouragement and despair because of the small success that I feel like that I've experienced. Oh, my friends, may I say that the crowning achievement in your life and mine is to be faithful to Jesus Christ all the way until we close our eyes in death. And that's not an easy thing. This word endurance that has been so prevalent in the Hebrew letter, and we see it again in verse 3, consider Jesus that endured, and its synonym perseverance. We see that in the word patience. Let us run with patience, that is perseverance, keeping on, keeping on, never giving out, never giving in, never giving up. The word hupomone means literally to remain under. The idea is that even though the pressures are great, that you keep going and you remain under the burden without throwing in the towel, hanging up the cleats. It was the message the Hebrews needed in the first century. And it's the message you and I need today because each of us knows people that once were friends and brethren and comrades in this journey of faith, but have now decided it's not worth it after all. So the apostle says, I want to reinforce the main point in the Hebrew letter, the need to persevere and to keep going in faithful discipleship. And if I can just sort of give a synopsis of the chapter, and I don't want to lose you with this because it is a bit technical, but uh, the secret to endurance, the key to keeping on, keeping on, according to Hebrews chapter 12, is to maintain focus on the big picture. The big picture. To see things from a long-range perspective. Of course, you and I tend to be myopic, don't we? Have you ever heard this saying, I'm so close to the forest, I can't see the trees? You know, we get involved in daily life and we tend to lose the big picture. We lose the long-range perspective. We get nearsighted. We can only see the demands of the moment, and we cannot see the big picture that Jesus is real, that heaven is coming. Isn't that our problem? And the Hebrews were people who were losing sight of the future or the afterward because they were focused on the now. The point to which the writer returns again and again in Hebrews chapter 12 is this idea of interpreting now in the light of the afterward. You see it in verse 2. He speaks of Jesus who went to the cross, and it says he endured the cross. For what? For the joy set before him. That is the afterward. He was looking further than the moment. Do you see that? He was looking at the joy that was awaiting him, and that's why he was able to endure the present shame and pain of the cross. You see it again in verse 11 when he says, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous. Notice this contrast between the now and the afterward. Right now, chastisement is not pleasant. Nevertheless, afterward, 
Notice the focus on the future. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. This is the common theme in this chapter, that we need to learn to see the now in terms of the afterward. You see it again in verses 16 and 17 when he cites the example of Esau, who he said, for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Now, what was his problem? His problem was that he lost sight of the future because of his present hunger. Remember when he'd come back from hunting, he found Jacob making a pot of stew, and Esau said, give me some of your pottage. And Jacob said, well, sell me your birthright. I'm not going to give it to you for free. Let's make a trade. You give me your birthright, and I'll give you something to eat. And Esau, for one morsel of bread, sold his future, his birthright. And how many people are like that, my friends, that they lose sight of the big picture because they're focused on the here and now. That is the focus in this 12th chapter. He goes on to say in verse 17, for ye know how that afterward, notice the focus on the afterward again, he would have received or inherited the blessing, but yet he gave it up for the present satisfaction of a meal. How many people, my friends, live for the moment and they don't think about the long term? And here's the perspective of the life of faith. The Christian is somebody who is able to endure the problems right now because he doesn't lose sight of the ultimate reality, the big picture. He's not somebody who's only thinking about the next meal or the next ball game or the next task that I have to accomplish, but he's interpreting all of life in terms of the ultimate reality that Jesus Christ is our great high priest, that heaven is our home, that God is real, that he is with us, and that one day it will all be worth it. And we sang about that this morning, didn't we? We'll understand it better by and by. Right now, you say, I don't understand it all, but one day. You see, that's the perspective of faith that says one day it will all make sense. One day. And it's that focus that distinguishes the Christian from the typical worldling who lives for the moment, who lives for pleasure and loses focus on the ultimate or on the big picture. Now, he's going to develop this thought in this chapter in terms of three metaphors. And the first one is in verses 1 to 3. It's the metaphor of a long-distance relay race. That's the passage I read in your hearing. And if you've ever run in a race, and if you've ever participated in a relay race, you know that what the apostle is telling us in these first three verses is learn to think of your life right now, each day of your life, in terms of the big picture of redemptive history. We'll come back and explain that, God willing, in just a moment. The big picture. Verses 4 to 17 is the metaphor of a child training program. And his point in these verses is learn to interpret your difficulties right now in terms of the big picture of your spiritual growth toward maturity. And then verses 18 to 24 is the metaphor of a mountaintop view. You know, you can see for a long ways from the top of the mountain. And he talks about going up on top of Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai. In verses 18 to 24, that's the metaphor, and his point is learn to think of worship in the local church in terms of the big picture of the church triumphant. What we're doing this morning touches heaven and touches eternity, and it's the same thing that the disembodied souls of the saints in heaven are doing right now around the throne of God. You are come 
to the heavenly Jerusalem, he says in this passage. So notice how all three metaphors, the relay race, verses 1 to 3, the father's discipline of his children or his child training program in verses 4 to 17, and the mountaintop view of Mount Zion, how each of these is teaching us to interpret the present in terms of the big picture. Okay, with that in mind, let's go to our text in verses 1 to 4. He teaches us that the Christian life is compared to a race. Now, interestingly, the word run, let us run with patience in verse 1, is the Greek word agoni. And can you think of an English word that probably comes from that word agoni? How about the word agony? Running is not pleasant activity. <laughs> Running requires stress. It requires effort. It is agonizing. I was a runner when I was young. I've tried to keep running because of respiratory problems just to maintain healthy respiratory function. But I haven't run as I get older as frequently as I once did, and I notice that every time I go out to run again, I notice how agonizing it is. It hurts. It's not the same as sitting in my easy chair and flipping channels on the remote. Agonizing. It's, it's very painful. And that's the word that he says, let us run. My beloved, Christian living is not child's play. It is agonizing. Now, it's interesting how many various metaphors New Testament writers use to describe the Christian life. The Apostle Paul is a particular fan of illustrating what it means to be a Christian in terms of something with which people are familiar in secular life. The Christian life is compared to a warfare. We are soldiers in the battle. You see that in Ephesians 6, also 2 Timothy chapter 2. My beloved, we have an enemy and we're to put on the whole armor of God because we're in a daily fight, the fight of our lives, soldiers in a battle. He compares Christian living to a, a boxing match. He says, I fight, not as one that beateth the air. And he compares it to a wrestling match. We wrestle against principalities and powers. We're in a hand-to-hand -hand combat. There's a struggle. There's a conflict. There's an obstacle in the path. He compares Christian living to a farming operation. The husbandman, he says, sows his seed and he is the first partaker of the fruits. But probably far and away the most frequent metaphor in the New Testament for the Christian life is runners in a race. Now, long-distance running was never my particular forte, but my beloved, that's exactly what kind of race the Christian life is. It is a marathon, and it is a grueling kind of race. I've never run in one and don't have any plans to. Now, I respect people that have. It's not easy. In fact, it takes a toll on your body, and it leaves you exhausted for days afterwards. And it's a while before you can enter into another race if you're in competition because you need to recover and recuperate. But you see, that's exactly the metaphor. The Christian life is a long distance or marathon race. It's not a sprint. And doesn't that say something to us? The significance of that thought is very important this morning because it's not enough just to start well and to run hard for about a year in serving Jesus Christ. 
If we're going to be faithful to Christ, we have to start well and keep up the pace and run consistently all the way until we breathe our final breath. You see, it's a long distance and it's not easy, it's agonizing. Sometimes when I think of these sweet saints that have endured the pressures of life and they've made it through all of the struggles and then they've come to the end of their journey and they pass on to their heavenly home in peace and we look at them and we say, is that even possible? You know, whenever I was 20 or 25, I would look at some of these elderly saints and I would think, I wonder how they've made it through everything that is still ahead of me in my life. Have you ever done that? I would think, how did they make it through marriage problems? And how did they make it through health concerns? And how did they make it through all of the emotional, psychological struggles that are a part of living in a fallen world? And how did they make it through loneliness and depression and discouragement and financial reversals and job loss and relational tensions? And how did they hold it together and keep going? You say, well, they're scarred. They have their issues, and that's for sure. I understand that, but still, you look at a sweet-spirited, faithful saint near the end of life, and you say, how did you do it? And I've often thought whenever I was young that it was impossible. I thought, there's no way I can handle I can barely handle the pressures I have right now. How will I ever reach the point that they've reached in their life? And my friends, it's one day at a time, isn't it? It's a step at a time, a day at a time, and it's a commitment to keep on keeping on over the long haul because you say, well, I can't just do that because of willpower. No, willpower is not the secret. The secret is to fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. You've got to keep your focus on Jesus, my friend, because he's the one who will get you through the meandering scenes of life. He's the one who will be with you in the vicissitudes of highs and lows, in the valleys and on the mountains. He's the one who is the same as the next chapter tells us, yesterday, today, and forever. But I want you to notice that the Christian life is not only a race which we're to run with patience. Now, you don't need patience in a 100-yard dash, but you do need patience for a long-distance race, cross-country, right? you're going to run cross country, if you're going to run the Boston Marathon or the New York City Marathon, or if you're going to run as a relay runner carrying the Olympic torch across the United States or wherever they're hosting the Olympic Games that year, you start in one place and there is a relay of runners who pass the torch from one to the next until finally the final runner takes it up the steps and they light the Olympic flame. You see, it's a relay race. If you're going to run your leg in the journey, my friends, it takes endurance. But that's the second thought in this context, that the Christian life is not just a long-distance race. It is, in fact, a relay race. Look at the last two verses of chapter 11 again. After he talks about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Gideon and Samson and Deborah and Barak and David and Samuel and all of the rest of these faithful servants of God who finished their course in the past. 
After he's talked about each of these, he says, these all having obtained a good report through faith. Now that's reminiscent of the second verse in this 11th chapter. For by it, by faith, the elders obtained a good report. That is, God gives his heavenly endorsement to their lives. And, and that's what really matters. Not whether the local newspapers give you a good report, but whether God gives you a good report, right? What matters is his opinion of your life and, my, and mine. Not our fellow man's opinion. By faith, the elders obtained a good report. Somebody says, I, I think Moses was a failure. He left the palace for the prison camp. What a terrible decision. What a failure. But you see, that's man's opinion. God's opinion is, is that he was faithful to God. He lived by faith. He says, these all, having obtained a good report through faith, yet they received not the promise. That is, there was something still ahead. Watch the next verse. God having provided some better thing for us, listen, that they without us should not be made perfect. Now I want you to think about those words. Abraham without you. Moses without me. David without brother so-and-so. Sarah without sister so-and-so. They without us should not arrive at the goal, should not be made perfect. What does that mean? It means that it's important for us to learn to think of our life right now as a leg in the relay, in the relay of truth. In other words, what he's teaching us here, my friends, is that we are runners on a relay. And of course, you know that a runner on a relay is a part of something bigger than the individual. You know, a relay race is not an individual sport. It's not like the long jump in which nobody else is responsible for how you compete, that's an individual effort, right? Or the pole vault, or the 120-yard high hurdles, or the 800-meter run. There are relay races in which a team has to work together. And if one person falters in the relay, the rest of the team suffers the consequence of defeat, right? I think I may have told you before that that actually happened to me. Our high school had the second fastest time of all classifications in the state of Texas in the sprint or the 400 meter relay. I ran the first leg on that relay. I had a friend named Mike who ran the second leg. Rod ran the third leg. David ran the anchor leg of the journey. So I ran the curve and then the next runner took the baton from me and ran the straightaway, the back stretch. The third runner ran the other curve, and then the anchor leg ran the home stretch. And we had a very fast time. In fact, we hadn't been beaten all year. And finally, at the track meet in which we would qualify to go to the state track meet, to compete at the state level, we were way ahead. But our third runner was worried about a boy named Victor Bug from a local high school. And Victor Bugs was very, very fast. In fact, he held individual records in the sprints. And so this third runner was to run against Victor Bugs. By the time that he took the baton, though, we were almost 20 meters ahead of this other school where Victor Bugs was running. 
And we had worked to get our handoffs down to the millisecond. I mean, we worked and worked and worked. We trained and trained. We had places on the track where when my foot hits that piece of tape, then you take off, and by the time you're at full speed, I will have caught you. You'll take the baton, and there will be no loss of time in the exchange of the baton from one leg to the next. But my friend that was running the third leg was so concerned that Victor Bug would catch him that he looked over his shoulder to see where he was. And that momentary distraction compromised the precise handoff that would take place between the third and the fourth legs. And of course, when it came time to pass the baton, he couldn't reach him. He lunged for him through the baton. It fell to the track. It rolled out of our lane. We were disqualified. And thus, my track career came to a screeching halt. No doubt the Lord had other plans for me in terms of preaching the gospel, and I don't have any particular heartache over it today. Anyway, the point is that one person dropped the baton, and the rest of us suffered the consequence. It's a relay. Okay, notice the language. They without us should not be made perfect. What he's telling us in this verse, my friends, is that the Christian life is a continuation of the same race that the Old Testament saints have run. That is, we're not doing something different than what Moses or Abraham or Joshua or Joseph did. We are serving the same God. We are living by the same principles. In other words, there is continuity or a connection between the Old Testament and the New. Runners in a relay are part of something bigger than the individual. And what the author is telling us in this metaphor is that we need to learn to view our daily Christian lives in terms of the big picture of redemptive history. In other words, it's not about you, it's not about me. You say, Brother Mike, it's my life. I know, my friend, you're a runner on a relay team. And you have taken the baton. New Testament Christians have taken the baton from these Old Testament saints. And we are carrying on this same service to Jesus Christ. You say, well, Jesus was not the subject of the Old Testament. Oh, but he was. You know, the Bible's a book of one story from start to finish. That first promise and first prophecy in Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Euangelion, when he says the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. Even though the serpent would bruise his heel, he would bruise his head is a messianic prophecy showing us that the Messiah, the coming of the Christ, is the only hope for poor sinners in this world. When Abraham took Isaac up on Mount Moriah to sacrifice him, and Isaac was spared and he saw a lamb with his horns caught in the thicket, and he sacrificed the ram in the place or in the stead of Isaac, isn't that a picture of the day of Christ? When our substitute died in our place, Jesus, the Lamb of God, was not spared, and you and I are saved through his sacrificial offering on the altar of Calvary. And through the prophecies of the Old Testament, they were constantly looking forward. You see, my beloved, Jesus Christ is the theme of Old Testament types and shadows Jesus Christ is the theme of the New Testament gospel, and you and I, my beloved, are only a leg in the relay in the long-term perspective or the big picture of this race of faith 
It's just our turn to run is what I'm saying. And we need to learn to see our lives on a day-by-day basis in terms of this medley relay. And of course, everybody doesn't run exactly the same distance. This isn't a sprint relay. This isn't even a mile relay where everyone runs one lap, but it's a marathon relay where everyone runs a long distance race and then hands the baton to somebody else. Parents, may I say that your task is to run your race so faithfully that when it comes time to pass the baton to your children, they can run after you. And may I say that as church members, our task is to be faithful to Jesus Christ during our relay of faith so that when it comes our time to pass the baton of leadership to the next generation, they will have a sound, orthodox, and godly New Testament church that they can carry on. That's the goal. My beloved, history should be viewed in terms of each one of God's children who seeks to serve him. They're trying to be faithful to the Lord in their lives and to pass the baton to the next generation. That's the big picture. That's how you can run your race with endurance is by keeping that big picture that I'm a part of something bigger than me. This church is not about Michael Goins, the pastor. It's not about the deacon brethren. It's not about the longest living members. It's not about any individual. It's about Jesus Christ. And we are just runners in the relay. That big picture perspective should help you and me to be faithful, to run our leg as faithfully as we can, knowing that other people depend upon us doing what we need to do. And I want you to notice he says... Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, he's just talked about these Old Testament saints, and now they have gone home to heaven like a cloud in the sky. And they are witnessing to us that it is possible to be faithful to God, even though you have many problems and pressures along the way. They are witnessing. Now, this passage does not mean that they are witnesses of us. Sometimes the idea is promoted that this cloud of witnesses is watching us run our race. And to be honest with you, that's a very disconcerting thought to me this morning because most of the time my race has not been steady. You know, I've fits and starts, I've stumbled and fumbled and fallen by the wayside and I have to pick myself up and brush myself off and get back on the path. And uh, it is frightening to me to think that my grandmother, grandfather, is watching me. You hear that a lot in secular culture. You know, our loved ones have gone on or up there watching over us. My friends, I don't know of any biblical justification whatsoever for that idea. And I'm thankful that it's not the case. I do know our Lord is watching over us. But you know, they're so mesmerized by the Lord Jesus Christ, they're lost in wonder, love, and praise. Their disembodied souls are not tainted in the least by our failures and stumblings down here. I'm glad that that's the case. But may I say, one day we will all know as we're known, and we won't have to be worried about any of the problems here. So it doesn't mean that this cloud of witnesses is witnessing us. They're not witnesses of us, but they're witnesses to us. They are testifying through their memory. Abraham was faithful. Joseph was faithful, Moses was faithful, David was faithful. They kept serving the Lord in spite of their discouragements and their disappointments and the potential hurdles and obstacles in their path. They were faithful to God and they witnessed to us that it's possible to endure. And my friends, I want to be like them. I want to take the baton 
from these Old Testament faithful saints, and I want to be faithful in my race. And I hope you want to be faithful in your race, don't you? I can't think of anything more triumphant than for you and me to come to the end of our lives and to hear the Lord say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Because there are so many who have been unfaithful. There's so many who have gotten halfway into the race and have said it's just too much and I can't handle it. He wants us to abide under, to remain under the burden, even though it's hard and agonizing. He wants us, my friends, to keep going and to finish strong. And to be faithful in that sense requires that we do two things. First, run unencumbered. And secondly, run undistracted. He says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. What he's saying is don't be encumbered by excess body weight, unnecessary clothing. You ever notice when a person is going to run, they strip down to the bare necessities, to the bare minimum. If you're going to run a race, especially a long distance race, you need the fewest weights upon you as possible. You need to discard every impediment. Your excess body weight, you know, what you want to do is you want to train enough to where you lose the pounds and the, you know, the girth so that you can be faithful to run. And you want to lose your unnecessary clothing. And by the way, what he's saying here is if you're going to be faithful, it doesn't only involve doing away with sinful attitudes and sinful activities. Even legitimate responsibilities and activities may potentially weigh us down and become impediments to our faithfulness to the Lord. And he says anything that weighs you down or that encumbers you, he says, lay it aside. And not only these legitimate things that are not necessarily sinful, but particularly, he says, the sin which does so easily beset us. Now, I don't know what your besetting sin is. It's probably different than mine. But each one of us has a particular sin with which we struggle, and maybe more than one. And he says, if you're going to run unencumbered, you need to get rid of the things that weigh you down. And then, particularly, you need to mortify the old man, die out to your besetting sin, the sin which so easily besets us, and let us run with patience the race that's set before us. And if you're going to be faithful, and if I'm going to be faithful to Jesus after we've gotten rid of encumbrances, he says, I want you to run undistracted. And that's what the expression looking unto Jesus means in verse 2. Interestingly, this word looking really carries the connotation of looking away from everything else to focus exclusively on Jesus, looking away. Looking unto Jesus means deliberately look away from everything else and focus your gaze, fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. Now, so many people, I suggest, fix their eyes on their fellow runners. In athletics, particularly track and field, when a runner looks at another runner, just like my friend looked at Victor Bug, when he's focused on another runner, he loses a step. My friends, the best way to run the race is to keep your eyes on the goal. And what is the goal? Jesus Christ. Not at other people. You remember Peter said, Lord, what shall this man do? John 21. When Jesus was saying, Simon, lovest thou me? Lovest thou me? Lovest thou me? Peter decides to try to deflect attention off of himself. And he says, Lord, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do. But what about this man? What shall this man do? And Jesus said, in a sort of rebuke, what is that to thee? You follow me. Peter, it's none of your business what I do with John. I'll take care of John. Your job is to take care of Peter. Peter, you follow me. 
My friends, may I say that you and I can't control what the Lord is doing in somebody else's life. In the final analysis, you can't make somebody else be godly or do the right thing, but you keep following Jesus whether anyone else does or not. You know, that has been a salvation to me as I've worried about the condition of the church and I've finally come to the conclusion the only way I can keep my sanity is to say, by the grace of God, I'm going to keep following Jesus to keep my eyes on Him. Whether anyone else decides to or not, I'm going to keep on keeping on. My friends, that's what he's saying. Don't look at other people. Don't look at your circumstances. If you look at your circumstances, you'll sink, my friends. Don't put your eyes on current events, on what's going on politically. You say, all I do is watch the news May I say that may very well be the reason that you're discouraged and up in arms at all times. He says, instead of looking at things around us, I want you to look at Jesus Christ. Because he is the supreme example of faith. Somebody says, I'm looking at Moses, looking at Abraham, looking at Noah, Abel, Enoch, David, and the rest. Well, they're good examples, but Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith, right? He's the pioneer of this course. He's the one who ran the Christian life faithfully, and he's the finisher. He's not only the pioneer, he's the perfecter. He started, he finished, and he never missed a step. Jesus Christ is our ultimate example of the life of faith. How did he endure, you might ask? Well, he endured, it says, because he interpreted the now in terms of the big picture, as verse 2 says, for the joy that was set before him. May I say Jesus went through the cross and he endured it because he saw what would happen as a result of his death. He saw his seed. He knew that through suffering and dying, all that the Father had given to him would be saved and would be housed safely with him someday and he would lose not one of them. Jesus saw the end of the story and that's how he could endure the present troubles. So he says, brethren, endure like Jesus, and he says, endure through Jesus. And this is the great secret to faithfulness over the long haul, my beloved, is to fixate on Jesus Christ. Remember, as we've gone through Hebrews, he's talked about the deity of Jesus. He's the eternal Son of God, the Creator, superior to the angels. You you focus on that. It's talked about his incarnation, his real human nature in chapter 2. He took not only the nature of angels, but the seed of Abraham and was made like to his brethren in all ways except for sin. He says, you focus on that. It's talked about his sufferings and death as he went to the cross and conquered the one that had the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You focus on the cross. You see, fixate on Jesus. Fix your eyes on his resurrection. As this chapter says, he went to the cross and despised the shame but endured it, and now he's sat down at the right hand of God. Remember your Savior ascended up on high, and he is right now your heavenly intercessory priest, your great high priest making intercession for you, touched with the feeling of your infirmities. Fixate on Jesus' glorious return, as chapter 9, verse 28 tells us, he's going to return the second time without sin unto salvation. My friends, here's the great secret to running your leg of the relay, faithfully all the way to the end, is to keep your eyes not on the world around you or on people around you, but on Jesus Christ himself, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And you know, the hymn writer captures that thought so poignantly when he says, sometimes I feel discouraged. 
You ever feel like that? And I think my life in vain. I'm tempted then to murmur and of my lot to complain. (laughs) I'm just going to give up. But he says, but then I think of Jesus. That's it. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. But then I think of Jesus and all he's done for me. Then I cry, O rock of ages, hide thou me. Sometimes I think I dare not go one step farther on. And from my heart all courage has disappeared and gone. But I remember Jesus and all his love for me. That's it. That's the secret. Then I cry, O rock of ages, hide thou me. My friends, fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. Sharpen your focus on him. You say, well, what about the fellow in Russia? What about the fellow in Washington? What about the fellow in Canada? What about the fellow in North Korea? Focus on Jesus. You say, what about our pastor? No, focus on Jesus, not your pastor. Fix your eyes on him, and you will be able to endure and run your race so that when it comes your time to breathe out your last, you will be able to say with Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And henceforth, there's more awaiting me what was the chief joy to me down here for to live was Christ to me now and to die is gain because it's more of Christ. Jesus is my life in this world. He's my life forever. So therefore, I'm not going to set my affection on the things of this earth, but on things that are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. That's the secret for successful and faithful Christian living in this world. Sometimes I feel